Welcome to What She Said. My name is Candace Sampson, and when I first took over What She Said in January 2020, I jokingly asked in the intro, what could possibly go wrong? And then 2020 said, let me show you. My life has been a country song ever since, but then again, so is everyone else's right now. Thankfully, through this podcast, I get to meet the most amazing women in Canada and around the globe and share their stories with you. What She Said is here to talk about anything and everything under the sun as interpreted by and through the perspective of women. Because honestly, we've heard what he said for long enough. If you like what you hear, be sure to hit subscribe and share this podcast with a friend. Today's show is coming right up. I think about the space I take up in the world a lot as a woman. There is rarely a day that goes by that I'm not acutely aware of how my gender affects the outcome of a lot of the choices I make. But like many, I'm so immersed in my experience that I rarely give thought to how the world I interact in actually determines the space I have physically. My next guest has done a deep dive on this matter, thankfully. Leslie Kern is a feminist geographer and has laid out what a female-centric city might look like through the lens of motherhood, friendship, protest, and safety in her new book, Feminist City, Claiming Space in a Man-Made World. Trust me, you'll never look at the infrastructure surrounding you quite the same way again. Hi, Leslie. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So I'm going to, you know, use an expression that's used a lot right now that all the cool kids are using it. But I was today years old when I learned of the term feminist geography. Uh, So perhaps we could set up this podcast with maybe a bit of a definition about that. Sure. Well, feminist geography is a way of looking at the spaces around us, both our built environments and our relationship to the natural environment through a gender lens. And basically what we're trying to understand is the way in which ideas about gender, histories of gender relations and gender norms continue to inform the sorts of spaces that we build and the kinds of um, societal relations that take place in those spaces. So for me, being a feminist geographer is kind of like exploring all of the ways that sexism and gender difference literally get built into the spaces around us. So, you know, it was funny because you, you sent me a, a co- an advanced copy of your book to read through. And, you know, I think about feminism a lot. I have two daughters uh, who are feminists. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of exhausting actually living with two young feminists because they have way more energy than I do. <laughs> but, uh, but I think about it a lot and I don't think I really thought about it in terms of that space of, of the geography until I started reading through your book. Um, there's a lot there. And really, um, it's, it's a little bit overwhelming when you start to think about all the ways it affects us. So if we could, maybe we could just kind of go through the categories you have in the book. And so if we could start with moms and sort of the space that that takes up, because I think that's a huge one. Yeah, that's a great place to start because uh, for for me, that was really the first experience where I started to understand that sexism wasn't just sort of this thing floating around out there, but that it was also really part of the environment. When I became a mom to my daughter, I was living in the city of London. And as an able-bodied 
cisgender white woman, I had always found the city to be very accessible, a very uh, comfortable place for the most part. But all of a sudden, when I was trying to navigate the city as a pregnant person with a baby in a stroller or strapped to me, it felt like the city was just putting up all of these literal roadblocks in my way. I could no longer get on public transportation. I was taking up too much space. The things that I needed to do with my daughter seemed really out of place in the kind of cafes and public spaces that I had been so used to before, I no longer felt welcome. And it it seemed as though this, the city was sending me the message, like, you belong in the home now. Why are you out in the streets? Why are you on the subway? Why are you taking up space? So I would, I mean, I don't think that that may, is maybe a deliberate planning, but maybe a planning by omission, right? Like they just don't, who the planners don't think of us in the planning. Is that, would you say that's true? I think that's a fair assessment. Historically, most of the people who have been planners, architects, developers, urban designers, the construction industry, these are male dominated professions. So as you say, a kind of an omission there by, by way of uh, perhaps their, their own experiences of what they need from the city, the way they move through the city and so on being reflective of their, their own lives and not so reflective of the lives of women. But I think we it's also fair to say that certainly uh, men's needs have been prioritized over those of women in the city and that even today it, it's still kind of an uphill battle to get gender differences recognized as something that planners and architects might want to take note of. So if we could then let's talk about Vienna, because I had a brief, a brief uh, stay in Vienna, a very unplanned stopover, fell in love with the city. But I was I was interested when I was reading in your book, you were talking about they actually went out and started to do something about this. So how is that working for them? Yes, it's a great example in the neighborhood of Aspern, Vienna, as they were trying to explore ways to, you know, make it a really great functional neighborhood. They engaged in a gender mainstreaming process, which means that they run all of the planning and building decisions through a gender equity lens, essentially asking if we put this public transit route here or this school here or this playground here, does this enhance gender equity or take away from it? And some of the interesting things that they did included symbolic measures like naming all of the streets and public squares after women. So you have things like uh, Hannah Arendt Plaza, uh, but they also had um, female architects design the new housing developments uh, to include sort of a, a range of flexible apartment styles, stroller storage on every floor, and a close integration with spaces like parks, uh, daycares and kindergartens, healthcare services, and public transportation to really try to balance those needs of those who are our caregivers, who are still predominantly women in our society, and uh, the, the needs of, of paid work as well. Like, yeah, let's talk about that for a little bit, a little bit, because. This is, I think, something we probably most women experience, but don't understand the implications of this. Most women, you know, they get up in the morning, they have to go to work, they have to get their child ready, they have to take them to a childcare or somewhere maybe across the city or not conveniently located, and then get to work and then get back and get their child and then do, you know, get to the doctors, all of these things. The, this is time. This is very valuable time out of out of lives. And that's how that sort of planning really can wear on us. Right. That that big that broader city planning that happens. 
Definitely. The transportation systems, public transit, roadway systems are really designed to create this kind of efficient linear journey from home to work in a central business district, usually prioritizing a sort of nine to five commuter pattern without making stops along the way. But decades of research from all around the world have shown that women's journeys don't look like this. As you say, there's usually um, stops to drop off children, there's checking on an elderly parent, there's going to paid work, maybe multiple paid jobs because women are more likely to be part-time workers, stopping on the way home for something for dinner to pick up diapers and, and then coming home. And yes, these things don't all happen along a neat linear route. Sometimes they require extra money to get on and off of transit systems and uh, they're not terribly accessible either. So it might be um, a burden of energy as well, struggling to get uh, access to these places with, with small children or the shopping and so on. All right, let's move on then because moms I think is a, is a huge one, <laughs> uh, but you also talk about friends and, and how that works for, for, for women and friends. So let's break that down for us then. What does that look like as it's currently running and what it could look like if we were planning things a little differently and a little better? Sure. Well, I think it's fair to say that even though most of us would say that, you know, friendship is really important, that in in our culture, romantic long-term partnerships tend to be held up as the most important kind of relationship that there is. And there's an expectation that once you're an adult and you found that long-term partner, that your friendships become secondary. And we can see how this is reflected in the built environment in terms of the kinds of housing that we built. They're all organized around the idea of a traditional nuclear family. There's not many housing types that really support different sorts of family forms that could be based around things like female friendship or other ways of organizing families as well. So when I think to the future and think of what a feminist city could look like, it's not about completely getting rid of the single family home, but it's about opening up different ways of thinking about how we might come together in different household forms that don't depend so much on a kind of primary romantic relationship. So maybe it means uh, senior citizens living together in, in, a, in a group of four or five. Maybe it means uh, friendship groups that decide to buy property together and, and share those spaces. Or maybe it means friends who decide to raise their children together outside of um, the bonds of traditional marriage. But we don't really have a housing system that's set up to support that at the moment. I've, it's funny you say that, you know, I've seen, uh, I'm going through a very uh, contentious divorce right now. I have many friends who are on the other side of divorce. Uh, and, you you know, we get to a certain stage of our life where we think we, we don't really want to uh, throw in with a guy. <laughs> We're happy to proceed with our friends. But as you said, it doesn't, it, that, does, that doesn't exist. Um, and so it seems a little bit like a pipe dream right now. Everybody talks about the golden girls and getting those spaces with their girlfriends. I'm curious, in your research, did you come across any developments, uh, like housing developments that are working for that sort of setup? 
Well, there is a, a movement that's called co-housing, and we do have some examples of it in Canada. And these are housing developments where there are units for sort of individual households or even just individuals, but there's more shared and communal space, like a little bit of green space for gardening and play. There's shared kitchen spaces and recreational spaces. So the idea is that people still have some measure of privacy. You're not just living in a giant communal frat house with your friends while you're in your 40s and 50s, but there are more shared spaces and more spaces where kind of that shared caregiving labor, whether it's for children, for elderly people, disabled people, or even just the social care that we all need as human beings can happen without it having to be, you know, making plans to go and meet somewhere else. It's all happening within that development. So co-housing is certainly one uh, possible way forward that people are exploring, because as you say, the for most people, the traditional nuclear family, even if it's a reality for part of your life, for most people, it's not the way that we spend our entire adult lives. So we, we need some different choices. A lot of the uh, conversations I have on my radio show uh, with people in wealth management, you know, there's an ongoing conversation about how women are going to control uh, more than half of the wealth in this country by 2030. And it's interesting to me because where will we spend that? Is that that's not going to be even where we purchase things is not really built for us. So it would be interesting to know if, if, I know, for example, I know that the banks are paying attention to the fact that women are going to be controlling a lot of the wealth. I wonder who else is paying attention to the fact that women will be controlling the wealth. Did you come across anything like that? That's such a great question. It's not something that I I know much about, but I would have to say that uh, if that is to be the future, then certainly... um, both sites of consumption and cities themselves might have to pay a little bit more attention to what sorts of spaces are really functional for women, what uh, issues of safety are involved in, you know, designing the urban environment and people's access to space. And also, I think, you know, some of that wealth is going to be spent on places like homes, right? Condos, apartments, houses, so are we designing the sorts of spaces that uh, that people want that are not kind of trapped in a like 1950s model of what the family or the home is supposed to be? And, and the 1950s are so over glamorized anyway. I wish we could just get away from that whole mindset about it being the golden era. It just really was not. Uh, let's move from friendship, though, into uh, women who just would like to be alone. Thank you very much. And how can the city... Uh, be adapted for them, for people who just want to stay single. And and like I, you, you, you have one little uh, chapter in here called The Right to Be Alone. I would really like to focus on that because I feel like we don't give people that right. Definitely. It, it may seem a little bit counterintuitive to say, oh, we want, you know, a vibrant urban sphere, but also maybe sometimes just leave people alone. But I, I say that from the perspective of, of a woman, and I think many, many women will relate to this experience where when you're when you're out and about in urban space, you kind of always expect to be spoken to by somebody. Uh, if not harassed, then you might be told, hey, give us a smile. Where are you going? Looking nice today. Uh, can I talk to you for a minute? What are you reading? All of these questions that on their own maybe don't seem 
horribly offensive or intrusive, but add them up over the course of a day, mix them in with the kind of catcalling and harassment that is problematic. And you get this scenario where women really feel like their time and space, and sometimes even their own bodies are not their own in the city. There's a sense of real entitlement, I think, on the part of some people to uh, speak to women, to take up their time, to get in their personal space. So when I think about the right to be left alone, it's not because I imagine a sort of antisocial urban sphere where nobody is uh, friendly or socializing, but where people's personal boundaries are respected and not sort of routinely violated. I think in order to get to that space, women especially and other marginal, marginalized or vulnerable people have to know that uh, they're not going to be kind of accosted or harassed on a daily basis. What would you say to people then who say, well, I was just saying hello, I was just being friendly, you know, uh, do we want, we're not looking to to stifle that. And it brings about, you know, this, there's been a lot, a lot on social media and the news recently about not all men. Um, and, you know, the, the conversation of, well, I was just saying hi, or, you know, um, how do we, how do we talk about that openly? We're not because we're not saying all men, obviously, <laughs> which is exhausting. But how do we have those conversations? Because I, I know, you know, my daughter was just telling me that she was downtown um, with friends and she was she walked out of a store and two men came up to her, were extremely close for a pandemic, for starters. That made her nervous. And and then, you know, wanted to tell her how beautiful she was. That really, you know, put her in an awkward position. So how do we how do we create that right to be alone and to be left alone in a public space? Yeah, I, I think what people need to understand is that there is a difference between hi, how are you and commenting on somebody's body and physical appearance, that there is actually a boundary there. And I think we've become so accustomed to the idea that it's normal and natural to comment, especially on women's appearances, that we don't recognize that that is actually stepping over a line when it comes to a stranger. And I think what people also need to understand is that for women, we never know when that hello, looking nice, how are you, is going to shift into something more aggressive. Because often what happens is that if you don't respond or you don't uh, fully engage or you just say thanks and you keep walking, People call after you. They continue to harass you. If it goes from you're looking nice today to you're a bleep, um, you know, to. to oh, you can call. say it. We don't have to censor yeah. this. You're a bitch. You're right. We've all heard it, right? Exactly. Exactly. So if people understood that that is kind of what's going through women's minds, that we're, we're not thinking, oh, this man is necessarily violent or dangerous, but we've all had those experiences where something, um, didn't end up just being a friendly conversation, then hopefully people would approach it more cautiously and know that if you do want to say hello, sure, say hello, but be prepared to walk away if it doesn't turn into, you know, a, a lifelong connection. That's fine. Uh, don't don't assume that um, you're entitled to continue getting a piece of somebody's time. I think for men, if there's any men listening, and I, I don't think there's a lot because it is what she said, but let's just say there is a man listening. I think one of the best pieces of, of advice I ever heard was that before you say it to a woman, ask yourself if you would say it out loud to a man. I exactly. think that would stop a lot of men cold. 
before they would say it. Never say to other men, hey, give us a smile. It just doesn't happen. So if it's not normal or okay in that scenario, then you're right. Don't say it to a woman. But those things sound like, now talking about this, this this sounds like education, um, you know, how we're speaking and less about the geography of the space is there a way that the geography can change that for this sort of thing so that women feel comfortable being alone, um, walking even, you know, in public spaces in the city? Sure. There have certainly been moves over the last several decades to improve certain design elements of cities, whether that has to do with lighting, uh, sight lines, uh, clearing away, you know, kind of little areas that, that are kind of pockets where people could could hide or or whatnot. And these things do matter. I think there are definitely design interventions, but it also has to be coupled with this kind of educational piece, this attitudinal piece. Uh, I do think that cities can play a role in this, though. I mean, many cities on public transit systems have instituted kind of anti-harassment policies and public awareness campaigns or even campaigns that try to encourage people to stop manspreading on, <laughs> on, on the train or the bus. And you know, those are, again, not the be all and end all solution, but I think they're part of creating a a kind of a cultural shift where we say, oh, yeah, it's not socially acceptable to behave that way anymore. So from from the right to be alone, let's move into um, protests, because this this is huge, particularly, you know, I I'm Gen X. I grew up not really with a lot of protests. It was sort of, you know, post 60s and the whole protests of that to a little bit of a calm period. And now we're seeing, certainly with my kids, uh, Gen Z, there's massive protests globally on almost every, every, um, everything really from the environment to, to Black Lives Matter, uh, Me Too. So protesting has become almost part of life at this point. Um, how, how can we, how does geography affect that for women uh, in protests uh, right now? Like, what are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah, cities have always been really important places for all sorts of social movements, including the women's movement historically. And I think what we what we see today, again, is that many of these movements, Black Lives Matter, climate change movements, um, pride, all of these social movements do tend to gather in cities because these are the key sites where things get noticed. And this is where you kind of speak back to power, right? To the judicial system, to the legislature, to the police, to Wall Street, to whatever organization it is. So cities remain really key there. In my own experience of being an activist over many decades, I, I do think that gender is an important thing for for activists to consider in terms of, you know, whose voices do we hear in in protests, whose names get recognized, are protest spaces uh, safe for women, trans people, gender, uh, non-binary people, in terms of, you know, is there a safe space to use the bathroom, is your sort of bodily autonomy going to be respected and recognizing that there are different risks that people might take when they encounter potential either counter protesters or police or even the risk of getting arrested Um, and and recognizing that, you know, protest is not necessarily accessible to everyone, particularly if you have caregiving responsibilities, you have a disability of some sort. So thinking about how can we create 
cultures of protest that are widely accessible, but also give people a wide range of ways to participate in movements that are not always about showing up in the streets. But then again, for those of us who do have the privilege and the ability to show up in the streets, it's important that we do so when we can. Oh, I've been to more protests uh, in the last, you know, (laughs) five years than I've been in my entire life with my daughters. That being said, there's a lot that we talk about in terms of keeping safe uh, during a protest. Uh, What is your advice for women heading down to a protest? Well, I I think one thing to watch out for is that sometimes when there is a, a little bit of aggression or danger happening, you will see some uh, aspects of kind of a toxic masculinity response coming out from both sides, even from those who are kind of on on your side in the protest. And it's important to be aware of that and to recognize that sometimes that level of aggression isn't going to help things. So you, you should do what you need to do to take care of yourself, if that includes retreating from the protest or staying with a group of people and, and not being afraid to call out problematic behavior when you see it, even within your own organization, because sometimes, unfortunately, harassment and even sexual violence has festered in activist circles because people don't want to, you know, call out those who are, you know, on the right side of things. So there, there's no, you know, group that is entirely immune to these dynamics. So women should not be afraid to speak up if something troubling is going on. What I found interesting is, you know, I, I in the last, particularly in the last year or so, uh, is looking into who is organizing this protest and and finding out as much before you head down uh, as possible. For me, that's helped knowing, uh, you know, who is organizing, what is the, what is the, what are we trying to accomplish at this protest? I think that's helpful instead of just going down, uh, uh, you know, with a sign. It's really helpful to know what, who's behind it. I think that's been key for us, at least. Uh, the last thing we're going to move into then is, well, two things, actually. The second last thing we're going to move into is uh, you talk about fear. And I think that is absolutely huge because I see women every day through the show who I think are incredibly brave and put themselves out there and talk about, you know, things that they get backlash on. And, and we still live with this, this fear that I think, you know, 50% of the population can't possibly understand. How do we start to, to deal with these issues in an urban setting? Yeah, I would have loved to have written a book about gender in the city without having to talk about fear, but you can't ignore this. It is something that impacts women's lives in a wide variety of ways, whether that's the route that we choose to walk home, the kind of job that we decide to take, whether we get on the bus or pay for a taxi, who we interact with. There's all sorts of consequences to it. And as you say, if you haven't lived this and you don't quite understand the kind of psychological and emotional toll that it takes on people's everyday lives. And of course, uh, then we we have stories like, you know, two, two weeks ago, the young woman in London, Sarah Everhart, who was just walking home and doing everything right, following all of that good girl advice for how to behave when you're walking home in a city. And she was abducted off the street and murdered. The accused is a police officer in that case. Again, reminding us that there is... Um, kind of no safe space or no safe person. So yeah, what do cities do about this? It's not just a design problem there. Although, as I said before, certain things like uh, lighting and, and so on are important. 
But some of the interventions that matter are things like, you know, how often does public transit run through a space, especially a residential neighborhood? Often those services are cut off at particular times, leaving people kind of vulnerable and walking alone. Are we thinking about mixed use developments where there's likely to be a wide variety of people on the streets at different times of the day and night? People tend to feel safer when there are other people around. Uh, what kinds of um, spaces do we prioritize? Often when we want to prioritize car traffic, we build an underpass under the road. Well, if you've ever had to walk through one of these dark, dank underpasses, we know that these are kind of terrifying spaces, but often the only way to get from one area to the other. But it's a question of priority. If we prioritize pedestrian um, comfort and safety, we might design something differently. So I think cities can take an opportunity to look at really every aspect of planning. It's not just about more lighting, but it's about thinking about mobility, about connections, about who's on the street, about mixed use spaces to create the kind of environments where uh, most people can feel as safe as possible. When you said that, the, I literally just went through a bunch of mental gymnastics in my head thinking about times where I have not wanted to go through an underground pass and had to stand there and just quickly think, okay, is it safer to go through the underground pass and risk being alone and possibly in danger or going way out of my way and then being late for where I need to be or consuming so much of my time? It's it's a conversation we have in our heads so many times that we begin to not think about it. But wouldn't it be nice to not think about it? really, and not have to make those decisions. Absolutely. And this is why I say it is, a, it is a mental burden that's placed upon people to have to make these decisions. And as you say, it can have material consequences. It can impact, are you late for that job? Do you even take that job that involves a night shift and a long bus ride to a different part of town? Uh, maybe these are decisions that you don't make because out of, out of concerns for safety and they could impact your, your economic well-being and your, your family's well-being. This, this is a very heavy topic, obviously, that you wrote about. And uh, did you come out at the end of this book? Did you feel like you were seeing signs of hope or were you a little bit dismayed at the end of it? Well, I do always like to look for signs of hope, you know, cities have have always been places that women have flocked to despite all of their drawbacks and dangers. Women have sought out cities for the kind of freedom that they offer for employment opportunities, for culture, politics. And I don't think that that's changed. I think women will continue to seek out city life and, and do everything in their power to make city life better. All over the world, there are different sorts of feminist movements in cities, so that gives me a lot of hope. There's also uh, kind of at the city level in various places, these gender mainstreaming approaches or taking gender planning seriously. So I, I think that there are all sorts of different levels and layers at which we can see some, some feminist interventions happening. It will, of course, be interesting to see in a post-pandemic world what sorts of changes to urban environments might occur as we shift, you know, the way that we work, the way we move through space and so on. But um, I think there are also opportunities in that time as well. 
There's so much to think about in terms of this. It's, you know, it's, it's, we have to get the right people in politics and the right people in planning. And there's just so many steps to this uh, movement. Uh, I hope that we get there, but I would like to thank you for introducing me to feminist geography, which I had never heard of in my life. I'm so glad that I know of it now. So when is your book out and where can people get it? So the book is out now. If you're in Canada, you can order the book from Between the Lines Press, or you can order it from Verso Books, which is the US and UK distributor. It's available, you know, online at, at all major online retailers. And you can also, I'm sure, find it at your local bookshop or ask them to order it in for you. And if people want to follow you and your work online, uh, are there spaces they can follow you on social media? Sure. They can find me on Twitter at Lely K, L-E-L-L-Y-K. All right. Amazing. Leslie, thank you so much for joining me today. This was great. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.